The Bob Murphy Show, episode 180. Hey everybody, before we jump into my originally recorded introduction to this episode, let me just give a trigger warning. There are some serious issues that I cover in this episode, as the title suggests. And so this one, you definitely want to exercise some parental discretion. There's no outright profanity, but the stuff that I am forced to talk about because of the people I'm responding to, it's definitely something if you're in the minivan with little kids in the back seat, you probably want to skip this episode for now. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hello everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show this is going to be an episode that I really wish I didn't have to do, but I feel compelled. So back in early December, Thaddeus Russell on his unregistered podcast, his episode 142, had a guest, Stephen Kirshner, who is a professor of philosophy at the State University of New York at Fredonia. And according to Thad in the blurb here at his own YouTube version of the interview, says Kirshner is the most renegade academic I have found. We talked about his many books in which he argues with scholarly rigor and precision that veterans don't deserve our gratitude, that if we were logically consistent, the pro-life movement would be killing lots of people, that there is no basis for morality or responsibility, and that many adult-child sexual relationships should be defended. This might have been the most fun I've ever had talking to a professor. So... In this episode here of The Bob Murphy Show, and again, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 180 if you want to get all the links associated with this discussion. I'm just going to tackle two of those items, and that was the order in which they discussed it on the unregistered episode, namely the claim that pro-life people ought to be out there killing a bunch of abortion doctors and women who've had abortions, and then the defense of many adult-child sexual relationships. And I say this is unfortunate, and I don't relish doing this. I feel like uh, some of you may know James Lindsay. He's the math PhD who was one of the co-authors in the so-called grievance studies hoax. He, a while ago, I talked about it here on the podcast, at least in passing, was in a big debate, not just with trolls, but with other people from math, from academia, with advanced degrees in math. And he was arguing that two plus two necessarily equals four and that we gain no insight by thinking about, well, what if two plus two equals five? And um, that's kind of how I feel. So what I'm going to be saying is, besides hitting back on the arguments about the pro-life position and how you're not inconsistent if you're pro-life, and refrain from murdering abortion doctors, that there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't show you don't really believe abortion is murder. Beyond that, I'm going to plant my feet firmly on the ground and say that adults should not be having sex with children. 
there I said it. And like I say, to me, that's as obvious as two plus two equals four. But society has gotten to the point where you have to argue with academics on both points. So let me, before I jump into the, uh, the details here, let me just give some framing of the overall context of this. Because superficially, I realize how this might come off. It might come out, oh, Bob, you're offended. Did we trigger you? Do you need a safe space, you snowflake? Show us on the doll where Thaddeus's words hurt you. Right, I understand that. So let me just, again, point out, I'm not, as a, as a Christian, if I point out that something, especially like a trend, an institutionalized, or dare I say systemic injustice is out there, the point is not that I'm saying, hey, everyone, I'm a good person. And those of you who are dabbling in this, you're bad. I'm so glad I'm a more righteous, upright person than you are. Ooh, you're gross. That's, that's not where this is coming from. This is coming from me saying out loud what should be obvious to people and what I am hoping most of you know in your hearts that no, Thad, men should not be sleeping with young girls or boys. All right, that's totally, totally inappropriate, immoral, unethical, whichever word you'd like to use for that. So to just distinguish what I'm doing here in this podcast, I'm not hunting down stories of pedophiles and then railing against them here on the show to say, I am an upright moral citizen. Look at this monster over here. That's not what I'm doing. The reason I'm recording this episode is because we have two PhDs here defending what to me is obviously an immoral practice. And so I am responding to their arguments, right? So like in the gospels, Jesus famously hung out with, broke bread with, quote, sinners. And that's ironic because everybody besides Jesus is a sinner. So <laughs> the people saying Jesus shouldn't be eating with sinners are basically saying Jesus shouldn't associate with any of us, but I digress. All right. But so Jesus was willing to associate with, be friends with, love sinners, but he had unbelievable fire in his words against the Pharisees, right? The people who were the ostensible teachers who were misleading the children of Israel, giving them false teaching. So that's what I view Thaddeus and Stephen Kirshner is doing here is they are coming on as academics. They should know better and they are teaching people horribly dangerous doctrines, okay? And so as another academic, I am rebutting that. Now, in a sense, by debating this stuff, the game is half lost because you've abandoned your moral intuitions, right? It should be as obvious that a grown man sleeping with a young girl is wrong, just like drowning kittens for sport is obviously immoral. Now you can imagine two PhDs going, well, I don't see how you can conclude that so quickly, Bob. Let's just think that through. I mean, after all, we slaughter young cows for our pleasure, right? We don't need to eat veal in order to sustain our life. And yet we do that. We also have horses in thoroughbred races, right? So we use horses and their bodies for our own pleasure and gratification in a sporting context and other contexts. So really, when you break down drowning kittens for sport into its constituent parts, none of those parts is immoral in other contexts and you'd be okay with that, Bob. So therefore, 
how can you so strongly condemn the drowning of kittens for sport? And I said, okay, yeah, I'm happy to go through and take a half an hour to debate this if you want. But let's just stay at the outset. You should know drowning kittens for sport is wrong. How do you not know that? Likewise, grown men sleeping with young children, that is obviously wrong. Okay, now we'll go through eventually later in this episode and deal with some of their arguments to the contrary. Incidentally, just so you don't misunderstand, they don't rest their entire case on the most egregious examples of this, okay? In other words, it's not that they're necessarily claiming the worst thing you can think of, of a you know 50-year-old guy and a four-year-old girl. They are on firmer territory in their own view when it comes to things that are not as exaggerated. But there is nothing in principle against you know those quote obvious cases all right so don't worry i will i will play extensive quotes from them later in this episode so you'll hear them make the case in case you think i'm surely misrepresenting their views okay another aspect to this is keep in mind for those of you who just this wasn't on your radar and you hear this and you're outraged like what thanks for letting us know about we had no idea let's go do something about that that kind of reaction is exactly what Thad would want you to do, right? He wants to be the Lenny Bruce of podcasters, all right? So my goal here is not to cancel the unregistered podcast or to get you to start an online campaign to get the advertisers on Thad's podcast to yank their affiliation with him. That's not what I'm trying to do here. It is quite simply people who lots of my fans like and lots of my colleagues interact with and he comes out and drops an episode defending adult child sexual relations a month ago at this point two months ago and nobody bats an eye and it wasn't just that it flew under the radar like if you go read the comments of his thing there were lots of people like yeah finally someone willing to touch this taboo topic or like lots of people are congratulating thaddeus for his bravery so i waited nobody else said anything negative so yeah i'm going to go on record and say yeah i i object to this so that's partly what i'm doing here this is all part of a broader trend this isn't an isolated thing and that's again another reason why i'm making this episode myself as a response because if this were just some one-off thing that whoa yeah thaddeus had some crazy episode and let's just ignore that and hope it goes away because that's awkward let's let's focus more on legalizing heroin safer topics that is foolish all right that it is crystal clear for those of you who have eyes to look for this that there is a systematic campaign underway to normalize not just quote sex work but the sexualization of children right you got your drag queen story hour at the library you've got all sorts of stuff um if you look at like the way older people talk to especially kids who are experimenting like with being trans and stuff. It's, they talk about their fetishes and things like that. And what's your kink? Oh, okay. Like adults talking to children this way, All right? Because I, I think partly the way it, they get away with it is because if it's somebody who's dressed up as a drag queen or who is trans or whatever, that quote, bourgeois, uptight parents who represent traditional values to them, this is so foreign that they just, you know, oh, I, I, I can't say anything. And plus, they don't want to be accused 
of being a bigot. So they just, oh, I don't understand their culture. I, maybe in their world, it's cool to talk to 11-year-olds about their kinks. All right, so I think there's some of that going on. But my point is this isn't just some isolated thing. And you say, okay, well, in the grand scheme though, Bob, what's the heart? I mean, I'm not endorsing every last detail that the QAnon people have said on, quite frankly, and I'm not merely saying this, I don't even really know what that is. Like I've heard people allude to it. I don't go investigate it. I don't know what that stuff is. But there was a sex ring of powerful people sleeping with underage girls, right? Jeffrey Epstein. If someone had talked about the Jeffrey Epstein scandal before the news broke, that would have sounded like a wild-eyed, crazy conspiracy theory, wouldn't it? And yet it did happen. And oops, he, quote, killed himself in prison. Imagine that. It's not merely this trend of sexualizing children. Every element of our culture has been taken over by what's this called the forces of evil, right? To, to be broad enough that I'm not going to leave anything out. Now, some people fighting on that side don't realize that's what they're doing. It's sort of like in, uh, for those of you who have read the Chronicles of Narnia, well, just the first one line, the witch in the wardrobe at the end, Aslan goes and rescues some people that were fighting for the white witch, but they didn't, they thought they were serving good, he says. All right, I'm, I'm botching the details, the but Aslan makes a distinction between, you know, certainly the people fighting for him were the good guys, but there were also some people fighting against him, but he allowed for the fact that in their mind, they thought they were serving good. They were just confused or had been tricked. All right, so again, here, none of this is coming as me personally condemning other people saying, what are you doing? You're a bad person. I'm better than you. That's not where any of this is coming from, right? The enemy is a trickster. He deceives people. And for those of you who think this is hilarious, oh, Bob is worried about some guy with pointy uh, horns. Remember, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. All right, so for example, if you listen to one of my earlier episodes when I talked about postmodernism, and or I think the title of that episode was Why the Left Hates Christianity. I'm jotting notes to make sure I link to all this stuff. So again, folks, it's bobmurphyshow.com slash 179. You will recall, if you heard that one, that I made the case that postmodernism, by its very nature, it's anti-language. It's anti-truth. And to the extent that Jesus Christ is the word, he is truth personified, in that sense, postmodernism as a movement, as a philosophy, is anti-Christ. Now, I'm not saying an expositor of postmodernism is the antichrist. Right? Thaddeus was very proud of himself when I somebody alerted him one of my when that episode dropped from me and said, you know, Thad, did you hear this? And and then Thaddeus retweeted and said, Ha ha. Now I'm literally being accused of being the antichrist, and I couldn't be happier. All right, so number one, don't flatter yourself that. I wasn't saying you were the Antichrist. I was saying the doctrines you were promulgating were Antichrist as, a, as an adjective, I guess, right? Yeah, that's be adjective, not a noun. But number two, though, that should also be a red flag for you folks that if someone is happy to be accused of being the Antichrist, that's not good. And in general, 
in this discussion. I don't know if in the clips I'm going to play, I'm going to have the part where he says it, but it's clear that Thaddeus loves it when Christians get mad at what he's doing. Like in other words, other things equal. If something he's saying bothers Christians, then that's a victory in his book. And so if you happen to be Christian and agree with that worldview, then that necessarily means Thaddeus wakes up in the morning and goes out and tries to do evil. If what he wants to do is oppose basic things that line up with the Christian worldview. Again, doesn't mean he, he knows he's doing that. All right. Let me just mention another example. So it's not just, oh, in the philosophy departments or in, uh, you know, critical race theory and things like that. I just recently became aware of uh, what's called mumble rap. Well, I, I had heard the phrase a while ago, but I didn't really look at the videos and stuff. If this isn't on your radar, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 180 and look at two of the videos. I'll put up two of the videos there. One, it shows the evolution of mumble rap over the years. And it has like, it's interspersed with interviews with lyrical rappers who are opposed to... So mumble rap is exactly what the name suggests. They're not enunciating. You can vaguely catch every fifth word and understand like the general theme of what the music video is about but you really actually can't understand what the heck they're saying. And they have interviews with someone's guy. They admit they're not even saying anything. It's not that you can't make it out. It's that they're literally not saying anything in some cases. All right. And so they'll intersperse this with interview with other people, primarily Eminem, who is taking a stand against the mumble rappers. All right. So this is where we are, folks, in the terms of the culture wars. Eminem is standing up against mumble rap and saying, no, no, we should be able to hear what words you're saying. You, you're supposed to be enunciating a particular perspective and just getting up there and mumbling doesn't count. And uh, radical feminists, radical lesbian feminists are joining forces with Christian conservatives against people who in the name of trans rights want to erase women, for example. All right, so that's where we are in terms of how much let's call it the forces of evil. If you want something more particular, you can call it Marxists. I mean, that, that's not broad enough because there's plenty of people involved with this stuff who aren't Marxists, but postmodernists, all that stuff, collectivists, if you want. That's how much territory they have gained. That's how far back we've been pushed that now actually people like Eminem and radical lesbian feminists are saying, whoa, we better pump the brakes here, folks. This is going to a dark place. So last thing I'll say here in this long preface, if you want to make sense of what's going... Oh, sorry. Let me say one more thing about the mumble rap because I, I realized I didn't just give you enough to understand what I'm talking about. Just like you can see how they are consolidating the flow of information, right? That it's not just people getting booted off Twitter. And, and by the way, do not for one second think it's only quote, far-right extremists who are being kicked off social media platforms. It's people on the left also. What they're doing right now is a systematic purging of anyone who speaks the truth from their own perspective, right? The only people who are going to ultimately survive this purge are going to be establishment tools or hacks. Now, in the context of, well, stuff you're familiar with, right? So it's obviously booting people off social media. They're also pushing now to clamp down on podcasts, right? They're calling that a loophole. Like, oh, wait a minute. 
these people spreading disinformation about election fraud. Yeah, they can't tweet it out now, but they can still have their own podcast. So let's go hound Apple about this. They need to deplatform these people or we need to blah, 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 blah. Right? So they're going after just podcasts. Again, they're just looking around, surveying the landscape and seeing how can people still get the truth? We need to plug those holes. And so another avenue for a certain segment of the population would have been rap. And if this, if you don't understand that, well, it's just you're not familiar with the scene. And, and by the way, I'm not claiming like I'm a man of the streets. I used to listen to Easy E back in the day and then I kind of fell out of it. And now I'm back with my boy, Tom McDonald. But the point is somebody who's going to be an honest speaker who's going to use poetry to talk about real issues for some people they would have turned to rap to get that and so if you think about what does mumble rap do it snuffs that out you can't talk about the real condition of people out in the you know inner city neighborhoods or whatever or what the police are doing to you or hey i'm under lockdown here i lost a job and now i'm waiting on stimulus checks and Biden lied to me, you can't talk about that stuff if you're just mumbling. And you really do need to watch these videos, folks. So I'm going to do two of them. One is the, the evolution of mumble rap. So you can see, and it's not just, oh, they mumble. If you had taken some of these later examples of this genre and showed it to people in 1990, they would have thought it was a caricature. It is young kids, like early 20s at best, who weigh a buck 10, just all dressed in chains and whatnot and, you know, gold stuff, surrounded by women who are physically bigger than them and, you know, 90% naked with, you know, fancy cars and designer handbags and da 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 And it's like, that's what it is. Like I say, it would have been a parody in the 90s if you had shown people these videos. And yet this is what's actually being promulgated by, you know, corporate music powers as and this is what the young kids these days like all right whereas you know the old school lyrical rappers are mostly appealing to an older generation all right there's also you say okay bob you're kind of overrated sure that's just the natural progression oh no 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 there is a message besides you know go make money and have sex there's another video i'll, I'll link in bobmurphyshow.com/179 that's called illuminati and you can just look at this thing, even if you don't believe in the devil, you can say this video is clearly satanic. Like there's just no other adjective to describe it. All right. So spoiler alert, the point of the video is not to warn you about the Illuminati. That's not <laughs> what the video is doing. It glamorizes them. Okay. So the way to the common thread in all this stuff, I will just throw this out for you, is to say there is a devil and he is trying to create hell on earth. That is the way to understand all of these different things, right? Because there's like a hundred different things going on. Like, wow, how come economics got captured by collectivists? Geez, how come postmodernism just took over all these different academic fields and just went out of its way to destroy the pillars upholding Western civilization? And wow, how come Marxism took over the leaders of the black community standing up against police brutality. Like there's literal Marxists now leading BLM. What the, what's going on? Why is the family being systematically destroyed? Why are people trying to normalize adult child sex? Why, why are people, um, oh, here's another trend that I'll discuss in a future episode. Left-wing Christians, 
right? Like people who are concerned about social justice, but they're, you know, they're Christian. They are being weaponized. They are gearing up for actual combat, right? Just like right-wing evangelicals for the longest time were pro-military and were okay with bombing foreign countries. People on the left now are gearing up for battling the forces of fascism here at home and how Jesus would be for that, okay? So this has taken over all these different areas. And so I'm saying the way to make sense of it all is, oh, suppose there is a devil and he's trying to create hell on earth, then all this stuff makes perfect sense. Now you can say that's crazy. Okay, go ahead, but prove me wrong. All right, let's go ahead and dive now into the episode. What I'm going to do is rather than have like a bunch of tiny little excerpts and respond point by point, what I'll try to do is to clump these together because I, I think also that's fair to Thad and Stephen Kirshner to let, you know, give them a chance to, to make their arguments. So you can sort of hear in their words and their train of thought, the context in which they're saying things so that I'm, you know, I do want to be fair and also not be accused of doing uh, out of context gotchas. So here we go. So again, first, they're going to be talking about the abortion debate, and then they're going to get into the uh, adult-child sexual relationships. What is the argument in your book on abortion? So my argument on the book of abortion is that the kind of standard pro-life view is not internally consistent. And I'll just give you a, a few examples. There's kind of like four or five ways you can kind of see it. Right. One is that in general, the pro-life forces do not believe that women who procure an abortion should be convicted of first-degree murder, for example. Um, right. But yet they seem to think that the fetus has the status of a person. It's a little hard to see how you fit those together. Right. They also often argue that it's not okay to assassinate abortion doctors on the way to the abortion clinic. Mm. And yet, given their view of the fetus as, as morally equivalent to a child, it's a little hard to see why that would not be the case. I mean, for example, if you had a Nazi death camp, so Auschwitz, and you had one of the executioners, the person who sort of drops in the Zyklon B, the only person can you know, activate it and drop it in right. on the way to work. It's not clear why it would be wrong to, to execute him. If you can't execute him in the camp, next few miles away to camp. And yet they seem to think, well, it's not okay to assassinate abortion doctors. It's a little hard to see what the inconsistency is. Okay. And then let me jump ahead to when Thaddeus chimes in with his own remarks. And then, and then I'll respond to this in general. My gosh, of course, they think it's murder. But then you're right. I noticed that they weren't calling for capital punishment or even putting women in prison, right? For getting an abortion or doctors for that matter, except for there. Actually, we'll say this Kevin Williamson, who's a writer for the National Review, has been on the show. I'm pretty sure he made the argument that we should at least consider capital punishment for people who get abortion. So that would be consistent, right? Yes. Okay. So there you have it. Kirshner was originally focusing his arguments on taking out abortion doctors, and then Thaddeus broadened it to in include women, right? And he, and he was saying, ah, say what you will about him, but at least Kevin Williamson really was at least toying with the idea of having capital punishment for women who have received abortions. Okay, and so the reason I'm bringing that up, and you could see that the guest didn't recoil from that, is there is a distinction between if you were killing somebody to prevent him from killing future, you know, the fetuses who are still alive. And so you're acting to save them versus acting, you know, killing a doctor for past abortions he or she had performed or killing women 
for as, as punishment for previous fetuses that had been aborted by them, right? So you, you see how actually there's a, an important moral distinction there. So I'm, I'm linking those two together to show you that it's not, they're not merely confining their attention to an abortion doctor who's going to work. And if we took him out, we could save some unborn babies, right? That, that they're also intending this argument to apply to women and doctors who have done stuff in the past. Okay, so before tackling that head on, let me bring up a related example. Their point here is, again, I don't want to clog this up with too many excerpts. Their point is these people don't really believe what they're saying, right? They don't actually believe that pro-life people, or at least they're not being consistent, okay? So, you know, you can quibble with what, what does that mean when, when you hold inconsistent beliefs, but the point being, if you guys really thought that unborn, you know, fetuses in the womb were unborn babies, then there should be a lot more killing going on, right? And yet there's not. Okay, so my related question, there's a lot of libertarians and I don't know if that calls them, I don't think that calls himself a libertarian, but he's certainly libertarian friendly on many issues. And I think he would definitely be included in this. There's a lot of them who think that there are uh, war criminals in our government. Previous government officials, you know, George Bush, Dick Cheney, and people involved in what's, what's been going on in Yemen, in the Middle East more generally, say, yep, a lot of war criminals who have served in the United States government. And yet, you know, could, could they actually believe that? Is that real? Is that possible? Because those people are all still walking around. So, uh, you know, does Scott Horton really mean it when he says these people are war criminals because he didn't go shoot them in the head? So I, I don't think Scott actually believes that. Or a different example, there's a lot of Americans who think O.J. Simpson killed his wife. Or they tell pollsters that, but they obviously don't believe it. And what's my evidence that they don't believe O.J. Simpson actually killed his wife? Because O.J. Simpson's still walking around. If you really thought he killed his wife, you would go and shoot O.J. in the head, right? Okay, obviously I'm being facetious. Those positions do not follow. Okay, and so now let's think through why doesn't it follow that if you think someone is a war criminal, you necessarily ought to go kill the person. Okay, number one, since the government itself right now does not consider those people to be guilty of war crimes or O.J. Simpson to be guilty of having murdered his wife, if you went and did something to them, you would be in trouble legally. If you went and killed O.J. Simpson, you would go to jail for murder. If you did anything to U.S. politicians for their participation in what you consider to be war crimes, since the government doesn't recognize them as war criminals, you just went and did something bad to an innocent person, you would go to prison. So that's one obvious reason you might not act on those beliefs in the way suggested. Okay, let's see, what else could there be? Maybe you think, okay, even though they quote, deserve it in some metaphysical sense, it would be vigilante justice if I were to go do that, right? And, and I think in the long run, society works best if we have the rule of law and I don't want other people going around 
stringing up people they think deserve to die outside of a judicial process with a jury and you know legal safeguards and so forth and them having legal representation. And so since I don't want other people doing that, to be consistent, I myself cannot just go around and unilaterally start killing people that I think need to die, right? So that is a perfectly reasonable explanation or position too, to explain how could I think some people are war criminals and yet I don't, quote, do something about it, all right? And going along with that, you could say, yeah, what, what I think we should do is try to educate other people, right? Because the problem is, the real problem, and this goes along with it, is if I were to do that, that wouldn't stop the war machine, right? In fact, it would garner sympathy for the war machine, the way the media would run with that story. And then people, other politicians would just replace the ones, right? So that's a related but distinct reason, as you could say, if my ultimate goal is to save the kids in Yemen from starvation, me going around using violence against U.S. politicians who signed off on policies that help further the war in Yemen or who were involved in the invasion of Iraq, if my goal is to help people in the Middle East stop getting bombed by U.S. forces, me going around doing violence against U.S. political officials arguably doesn't help those victims, right? And again, because what really needs to happen is we need to change public opinion here at home so that others see them the way I see them as war criminals, and then we would change the policy. And, we would, and the U.S. government would stop doing those things if I could convince enough people. And so since that's the ultimate goal is to convince my fellow Americans to renounce war, you don't do that by going around shooting people who are issuing policies that you think are wrong. So it's counterproductive and I think. Another completely distinct reason is you might think in your own value system, your own moral code, that it's wrong to kill a killer, right? That's a perfectly reasonable position to have. I happen to hold that. I'm a pacifist, right? So forget, you know, abortion, just regular, some guy down the street I learned killed somebody five years ago. I don't think, oh man, we need to go end that person's life for justice to be served. No, that's an eye for an eye thinking. I reject that, all right? So for all those reasons, you can see why someone might say, yeah, I think OJ killed his wife. And you wouldn't be like, <laughs> your actions belie your words, my fellow. No. Or yeah, I think US politicians, some of them at least are war criminals. And you would say, oh, really? Well, then show me your plan for doing what needs to be done. No, that doesn't follow at all. And so likewise, I could be a Christian who thinks abortion is a monstrous practice that kills little children who have yet to be born and yet also not feel that it would be moral and certainly not wise strategically to use violence against the people in that industry providing abortions. There is nothing inconsistent about that. Now, Spoiler alert, Thaddeus and Kirshner, who I think wrote an entire book on this particular subject, of all the reasons I just listed in their discussion of this, and they spent a decent amount of time on it, I want to say at least 20 minutes, they touched on one of those obvious objections to their line of thought, the one about the, the strategy, like winning hearts and minds. 
that is the only one that they even considered in this ostensible discussion, this hard-hitting deep dive into these issues from two PhDs, okay? That's stuff that I came up with. Obviously, I've had time to prepare since, but I thought of those objections off the top of my head within a few minutes just when I saw this interview the first time. And you're telling me these two guys know their opponents so little that that didn't even occur to them. Some of those other points I brought up, the only one, like I say, that they discussed explicitly was the one about it might be bad strategically. That you're, yeah, since you're trying to ultimately convince people to change their minds on this, if you go around using violence to get your way, that might be a turnoff. But they didn't mention any of the other obvious objections to that claim. Okay, now let's go ahead and listen to what they say about the other side. They need to start locking up people and killing people. That's what that's what's wrong. I mean, that it's that simple, right? I mean, well, actually, on that issue, so I, I have a number of friends who are pro-life, who are excellent philosophers, and I, I asked them. So I asked them individually. Yeah. You know, for my former you know colleague Dale Tug, people like that. I, so I asked them. Mm-hmm. So what's what's wrong with with shooting and killing abortion doctors? Now, some of them said, well, there's really nothing wrong with it, but it's a bad strategy. Right? It's not gonna. <laughs> we want to win the hearts and minds of no. the American people, and we're not gonna win the hearts and minds. So no. they're like, yeah, it's just it's just not a great strategy. And others said, well, you know what? Um, don't quote me on this, but I really can't see what's wrong with it. Yeah, <laughs> of course. So there was only a couple, most notably uh, David Hirschneff at, at the University of Buffalo and, and, and Phil Reed at Canisius, mm. who said, well, among other things, it's not as great a wrong as murdering an infant because there is a bodily invasion element. So the bodily invasion element adds a partial but not entire justification to it. Mm-hmm. Or it's a partial excuse for it. Right. Now, I don't think this works, but, but at least they had an argument, right? They tried to say, look, it's less of a wrong than murdering an infant. And so they, they, they tried to sort of get around it. And that, <laughs> that was the best response I got. But a lot of my pro-life friends, and like I said, were excellent philosophers and, and great people as well. They call it they what? They said, well, it's, it's a bad strategy. That's, that's weak. That, that is an, that's a cop-out. All right. So there you go. And there was an earlier part, I can't find it right now, where... Kirshner said he had gone to a Christian conference to present this argument. And the most anyone could do is kind of, most they could do is say, uh, well, we know there's something wrong with your argument, but we're not sure what it is. That's literally what he told Thaddeus the consensus was when he presented this thesis at a, at a conference where there were a bunch of Christians in the, in the audience. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say they said more than that, that they weren't just throwing up their hands being, yeah, you got us. Good, or something, something's wrong, but we don't know what it is. Okay, folks, let me just circle back before we leave the abortion debate. And I just want to touch on, because this, this is certainly a strand in the libertarian philosophical structure when it comes to abortion that's saying, hey, it's the woman's body and it doesn't matter whether the fetus is a person or you know when does life begin, that the issue is just if the woman doesn't want the fetus in her, end of story, right? And that was Murray Rothbard's position. And you know, Walter Block has a nuanced view of this. He calls it evictionism. And so let me play a little bit of Kirschner discussing these issues. And I just want to point out a huge problem with this analysis. The first assumption is that the fetus simply does not have a right to be inside the woman. In the case of an unwanted pregnancy, she never granted permission for the fetus to be inside of her. For okay. example, in the case of failed contraception, in the case of rape, even if she did grant the fetus permission to be inside of her, let's say she intentionally got pregnant, you can withdraw consent, just like you can withdraw consent to sex, you can withdraw consent to someone being in your house, you can withdraw consent to someone being in your body. 
So in that sense, I think the fetus does not have a right to be inside the woman, at least when the fetus is unwanted. Okay. So again, to summarize the argument there, Kirshner is saying a lot of these issues about when does life be, it doesn't even matter for abortion to be justified because it, it matters. Does the woman want, you know, there's a, this fetus is a, is a trespasser and just like someone could be in your house and then you say, okay, you know what? I invited you over for dinner. It's three o'clock in the morning. You need to get out. If the person said, no, no, you invited me here. I'm, I get to stay. You would be allowed to eject the person. And then and Kirshner had said, or maybe he'll go on to say, I'm not sure where this is in the clip, that, you know, the issue is the force involved, right? So normally you just say to somebody, okay, I'd like you to leave my house and they don't. You can't just automatically take out a vacuum and suck their brains out and then drag their dead corpse out the door, which is what happens in some types of abortions, right? But that's more of like a technological problem. But the idea that the fetus just gets to hang out until natural birth, he's saying, no, that's clearly not correct because the woman can withdraw consent. So he's saying, obviously in the case of rape, you know, the woman didn't consent to that. But he's saying even in the terms of consensual sex, even if the woman originally wanted the pregnancy but then changes her mind down the road, that's it. That's, that's all you need to know. So that's what I'm saying. No, that's, that's not right, right? Because the analogy would not be you invite a dinner guest over, then say, okay, we're really uh, looking to go to bed here, so I'm going to need you to leave, sir. And he refuses to go. That's not the, the relevant analogy. The relevant analogy is somebody comes over and you say, hey, do you want to be cryogenically frozen in my basement for nine months? And he says, oh, okay. And then goes in there. And then you decide a few months into it, nah, I've changed my mind. And you unplug the machine and the person dies. Right? I mean, all these examples or analogies are contrived, but that's closer to what it is. Again, I'm not talking about rape here. I'm talking about what he just did in the discussion of what if a woman originally wants the pregnancy and then later changes her mind and withdraws consent. And I'm saying that's you're not setting the, the situation up correctly if you view it as someone you know in your house and you change your mind or he elsewhere in the interview he gives an idea of you know what if a woman originally consents to sex and then changes her mind you know so someone's invading her body against her will even though originally she was for it and, and he's saying clearly you know that would turn into rape at that point and she could use force to eject the unwanted person yep that's true if you're talking about adults having sex but it's not really true if you're talking about a fetus who's inside you who, you know, you say, hey, okay, I've changed my mind. You need to leave now. That's a different situation. Okay, so now that we've done that fun stuff, let's talk about adults having sex with children. Wow. Let's go ahead and cue this up. And this, just to understand, this isn't some mere curiosity as far as Thad is concerned. This is something he's made a staple of his career. Let me show it to you in his own words. Listen, you're talking to a guy who for 25 years has been making arguments more or less in defense of adult child sex in classrooms. I don't know if it's the same argument as yours, but I even authored a piece in the Daily Beast in which I called into question the age of consent laws, oh, uh, which is, yeah. you know, and I, I brought to bear the arguments I was making in class. And I'm, I'm going to see how they, whether they jibe or not. So sure. adult child sex, Steve, so you, that's just the dumbest thing you could possibly argue if you're interested in a career, if you're interested in respectability, if you're interested in being, you know, invited to dinner parties, 
Okay, and we're going to come back to that because the issue, his Daily Beast article was about Roman Polanski when he was back in the news again. So we will come back to that at the tail end of this, but let's go ahead and play some of these arguments. So again, I'm going to let this guy, Kirshner, lay out his case, and then we'll respond. Let's start there. Like, why on God's green earth are you as crazy as I am in, in taking on this argument? I actually got interested in it in a kind of a roundabout way. What I was interested in is whether or not an act is wrong because it's harmful. So I actually got interested in it for theoretical reasons. Right. Because um, this seemed to be like a paradigm case. There's actually some meta-studies which seem to suggest that in some cases, uh, at least with regard to um, adult males and underage males, that it's not harmful or... Mm-hmm. If it is harmful, we can't decide whether the harm is due to the sex itself or the fact that society goes berserk over it. And so one of the articles I was reading said, look, this is wrong. We don't need to know whether it's harmful. The empirical question of whether or not there's any long-term harm we could track on this is really beside the point. And I was kind of struck with a question. I thought, well, it's not obvious to me why that is. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the standard kind of other argument is that it's a right infringement. And I wasn't sort of convinced by that argument. And also when it comes to hebophilia rather than sort of adult child sex, so sex with like young teens, it's not clear to me. I mean, look, there's at least some reason to believe that individuals are, you know, designed by evolution to begin reproduction at that period. So if they're Mm -hmm. designed by evolution to begin reproduction, it's not clear why it would be physically either harmful Mm -hmm. or emotionally harmful. And so, so there was kind of like three different explanations, none of which convinced me. One was that it was harmful. And I thought, well, there's at least some empirical, there's at least a controversy whether that's empirically true. Mm-hmm. There's the right infringement case that we don't get, they, they can't give their valid consent and therefore it's wrong mm-hmm. in virtue of being a right infringement. And there's a view that it's exploitative, that even mm-hmm. if it's not harmful, yes. and even if it's not a right infringement, it's somehow an exploitation. Right. I've, I've heard all these, yes, okay. Right, so those yeah. are the three dominant arguments. And none of these convinced me. So the, the, me neither. the, the, the <laughs> harm argument, well, there's, a, there's actual like, you know, empirical controversy over this. Sure, yeah. On the rights-based argument, I think, look, we, we make children do all sorts of things that Thank we don't you. want to do. Right? Thank you. you know, we make them go to they go to church. We make them go to the temple. We tell them to go to school. They got to go to the dentist. They got to go to their, their sister's ballet recital. And yeah. and we don't care what they say. And and they want to do things. We say no, right? They, right. they say, I want to stay up and watch, you know, Creature Feature on WPIX until, you know, Thank two you. in the morning. We say, well, it's tough. That, that, that is all a child's life is, is coercion, right, right. is coercion by adults to make, and often to make the child do something for the adult's pleasure only. That's exactly right. Yeah. You say, yeah, you're, you're going to go to your great uncle's funeral, even though you want to go, and he right. not in your interest. Right. So the rights-based argument's a little bit hard to follow. In addition, hmm. at least in some cases, certainly with hebophilia and sort of underage sex. Um, what's, with, what's, with the word, mid- what's the word about hebophilia? Hebophilia would be like kind of young, younger teens. Okay. You know, just statutory rape cases, right, where the person's under the age of, age of consent, which okay. actually, as, as you know, varies quite a bit between states. Indeed. And in those cases, the individuals seem to be willing, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like you even have, you know, you're, you're sort of dragging someone, kicking and screaming into doing something they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The third thing about exploitation is really bizarre because exploitation occurs when there's a kind of a transaction and both sides benefit from it, but one side, usually the side with the stronger bargaining position, takes an unfair share of the transaction surplus. That is, they take more than just share of the benefit of, of the, the transaction. Right. And you think, okay, well, even if that's true, one, um, I, it's never clear to me why exploitation is wrong, but even if that were not the right. case, right, because it's a mutually beneficial exactly. trade. Yep. Yep. But even if that were not the case, 
it wasn't clear to me, well, how do we know that the, that the underage, you know, the, the young teenager or the, the late pubescent child isn't gaining as much from this, especially if they're a willing participant. Mm. And even if they didn't gain as much, how do we know that there aren't another, uh, enough of other benefits, right? If someone, you had a tutor who's mm. tutoring them in, you know, literature or the violin, mm-hmm. why wouldn't the package of benefits be mm-hmm. such that they're gaining more than mm-hmm. their fair share of the transaction mm-hmm. surplus? So I thought, well, look, there are three different explanations. The first one's, you know, in, in empirical controversy. And it's, a, it's an odd view that whether or not it's permissible depends on the outcome of these studies. Right. <laughs> the right. second view just seems to be a non-starter, right? We just don't, we don't think that children <laughs> have to give valid consent for pretty much anything we do to them, right. especially if they're willing participants. You know, you know, we don't say, well, a child can't play kickball because they can't validly consent to it, even right. though they really want to play kickball. Right. And then last, exploitation. Again, I, I don't think exploitation is wrongful. I'm not exactly sure even what makes something exploitative. Exactly. If there were, I'm not sure what makes it wrongful. And even if it were wrongful, it's not clear that it occurs in uh, most cases of adult child sex or even um, let alone all of the cases. Okay, so that was a pretty long excerpt. And we'll stop it there so you can see what he, what he's doing there. That, hey, I went out and looked in the literature against this or, you know, like the common arguments against adult child sex. And it seemed like the objections to it fell into three different categories. First is that it harmed children. And he's saying, hey, looking at empirical studies, it's not obvious to me that that's the case, or at least it's not the case universally. And then he says, the second argument is that that somehow violates the child's rights. And he's like, well, well the children obviously don't have rights because look at, we make them play football. We uh, have them do all sorts of stuff. They got, they got to go to Aunt Matilda's funeral, even though they don't want to. We make them go to bed when they want to stay up and watch movies late night. So clearly it's not that kids have rights. And so you can't say adults having sex with children somehow violates their rights. And then the third thing being, um, well, it exploits children. And Kirshner just says, you know what? I don't, I don't even know what that means. Like, what, what are you talking about exploits? I, I don't even know if that's a valid concept. Okay, so let me first of all, clarify on the, the exploitation one. And, and again, this, this you'll see now why when I was saying if somebody wants to argue that drowning kittens for sport is wrong or shouldn't be considered wrong and you, you know, go through and okay on your terms, but this is amazing that we've been reduced to this, but sure, let me go ahead and respond to at least some of that stuff. On the exploitation, Kirshner does have a point insofar as some leftists do define exploitation in the way he just did there where yeah it's a voluntary interaction but of the total surplus one party takes the lion's share and that's not fair so for example when a leftist says that hey when the big agricultural employer hires a bunch of migrant farm workers and pays them virtually starvation wages in order to then go and, you know, sell the produce on the market and make a huge profit for their shareholders. They're exploiting those workers. And a standard libertarian would come along and say, well, oh, but I mean, it's a voluntary transaction. So it's a win-win, at least in an ex-ante sense, both parties get psychic profit. I read Mises. And the leftist, you know, would say something along the lines of, yeah, but come on, that's exploiting because they really ought to share more of that win-win gain with the workers that it's unfair for them to take so much of it. Okay, so Kirshner is right. Some people do use that term exploitation in that sense to mean 
it's a voluntary transaction. Both parties do benefit, but one party benefits disproportionately, and that's what they mean by exploitation. And I agree with him. It's not clear why that's so bad, that, you know, especially that we're going to link it to something that we think is one of the worst things about modern society, right? That it, no, both parties benefit, and you're just quibbling over the distribution of the gains. But the migrant farm worker is better off for getting that job than not. And how do we know? Well, because they're taking that job. So <laughs> according to the migrant farm workers' point of view, that was better than anything else they had going on at the time. And so it's weird that you would be criticizing the one person giving them money in society. Like you're not criticizing the other employers who didn't even hire them. The one person who gave them a break and has given them a job, and that's how they're supporting themselves, that's the people you go after, right? So that's a standard libertarian thing in Kirshner seems like he's sort of endorsing that response to the claim of exploitation. Okay, having said all that, no, when it comes to saying adults having sex with kids is exploiting the kids, someone saying that does not mean the kid benefits, but come on, we ought to share more of the benefits with the kid. That's not what we mean by using the term exploitation in that context. Let's, partly just because it's so disturbing, let's change the context of this. Let's say an adult went up to a six-year-old and said, hey, you've got two kidneys, right? And the kid says, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, tell you what, if you agree, you know, I'm going to give you this piece of paper and you're going to sign this legally binding contract that we're going to put you under and remove one of your kidneys and then you're going to give it to me and I have the right to go sell it on the market and I'm going to give you three lollipops. Are you okay with that? And the kid's uh, um, I, I don't know. And the adult truthfully says, look at here, let me show you. Adults can survive on one kidney, right? You, you don't need two kidneys, right? So don't worry about that. So what do you, what do you think? And the kid says, okay. I would say clearly that adult exploited that six-year-old in that hypothetical scenario, all right? And it's not because the kid actually benefited but didn't get the lion's share. It's because the kid had no idea of what that sacrifice was going to entail. And the kid was not in a position to make such a monumental decision. And so likewise, if an adult says to a kid like Kirshner suggesting, oh, I'm giving you violin lessons and besides teaching you the scales, how about we also have sex and the kid agrees to it, that doesn't make it okay. Because, oh, well, I mean, who are we to say? No, the kid does not understand the ramifications of sleeping with anyone, but certainly not an adult who's decades older, whereas the adult should know better than to take advantage of or exploit the child, okay? And I mean, the word exploitation is a perfectly fine word. It means something. So it's been perverted by Marxists, I would say, just like they pervert all kinds of stuff into using it in a way, just like racism is a real thing. It makes, you know, you could, there, could, there are people out there who should be called racist and it's bad. You don't want to be racist. But yet that term has been perverted now. So I'm saying that's kind of what happened with exploitation. Whereas Kirshner is saying, well, I don't understand. So an example like the one I just said is the kind of thing people have in mind when they say adult-child sexual relationships involve exploitation of the kids, all right? There's also examples where you can come up with things where the, quote, Marxist view is more plausible. Like you see someone drowning and you walk up to them and they're actually drowning in the, you know, in the pool or something. And there's no lifeguards around, just you. You didn't push him in the pool, right? They're not in there because of you. They fell in on their own. They're drowning. And you walk up 
and they're <laughs> struggling and they're holding their hand out. And you say, okay, I will help you, but only if you give me your car. And then the, you know, the person has no choice but to agree and you pull them out. And then now up, deal's a deal. And then they have to give you their car. Arguably, that was exploiting the person, even though technically it was voluntary. And yes, the person would have preferred that you rescued him rather than let him drown, even at the expense of giving you his car. So that's something where, in contrast to the farm worker example, you know, there I have more sympathy for the people saying, yes, there was a gain there. And the person who on one end of the deal drove such a hard bargain that we would say, you kind of exploited that person. Okay. So, you know, there, there is scope for that. I can see there's scenarios where, yeah, I would say, now you, you might say legally, you wouldn't want to rule that out, but we're talking morality here. Okay. Incidentally, let me, let me mention that because I just want to make sure I don't forget that. With all this stuff, I am not for this state throwing people in cages because of these things. All right. Again, I'm a pacifist. I am an anarcho-capitalist in the Rothbardian tradition. So I'm not, the fact that I'm saying these things in this episode, I'm talking about personal morality. Also, I forgot to mention this at the outset, I think, when I say, you know, here, I'm going after the Pharisees, not against the sinners. My point here isn't to demonize somebody who's caught in one of these things, right? It's sick. On online discussions, whenever there's a case of this, lots of people will chime in and let you know, oh, that guy who got caught, you know, with the six-year-old, if he was in my hands, you know, what I would do with him is first tie him down, then I would do this and this, and they'll like describe in intricate detail how they would torture the person to death. And everyone's like, give him a high five. Like, yeah, you really care about kids. That's awesome. And that sickens me too, right? You, you don't prove how much you care about kids by talking about your daydream of torturing someone. Okay, so again, with all this stuff, I'm not talking about what I want the state to do to these people. And I also understand there's abuses like sex offender registry lists and, you know, uh, 18-year-old having sex with his 17-year-old girlfriend and now he's on this list for the rest of his life and people think he's a pedophile, that kind of stuff. Yeah, the state takes things and perverts them. Newsflash. We're talking here, though, about personal morality or that's what I'm talking about. Okay, now regarding the second category where Kirshner says, now some people claim that, you know, adults having sex with kids, that somehow violates their rights. And, uh, well, no, because kids, we make them do all kinds of stuff that they don't want to do. And we prevent them from doing things they do want to do. So let's drop this silly talk about kids having rights. All right, there's an interesting rhetorical move that he and Thad made in that discussion. It's not the case that we make kids go to their uncle's funeral against their will. It's not the case that we make kids go to bed when they want to stay up. It's the parents or the legal guardians who have the right to do those things to children. All right, so it's not we. So for example, if I go up and I see a six-year-old and they have a $10 bill in their pocket and I go up and just take it from the kid, you'd say, you can't do that, Bob. That's theft. The kid has rights you just stole from that kid. I wouldn't be able to say, well, I think uh, this kid was forced to go to his aunt Myrtle's funeral last week. So let's drop this talk about the kid having rights. No, the kid does have rights and I just violated it by stealing from him. All right. Now, yes, it's a weird situation when he talks about parents and their 
duties and, I don't know, powers with respect to their own children, that they are allowed to do things to children that they're not allowed to do to people who are not their children, including other kids, right? You don't, again, you cannot just go do what you want to some random kid. You can't make a kid go play football if he doesn't want to. Only if you're the parent do you even possibly have that power. And so why do, why do we have this convention? Or I don't know if conventions or why do we have this practice? Because kids do not know what's in their best interest. They're too young and inexperienced and foolish. It doesn't mean they lack rights. Likewise, you know, somebody who's in a coma, one of their relatives may have been designated to have the power of attorney and they can make medical decisions and stuff like that. It doesn't mean some other person can go embezzle funds from the person in the coma's 401k and say, well, no, it's not theft because look at this guy's son is going out and signing all kinds of legally binding agreements. He's selling his house and he's doing all sorts of stuff with his retirement portfolio. So clearly this guy's not in control of his property. He doesn't have any rights to his property. It's not his property really. So why can't I take from it? That would be a goofy argument. And so likewise, let me be clear in defense or not in defense, but to clarify, Kirshner and Thad are not saying because we can force kids to play football, we should be able to force them to have sex with us. That's not what they're saying in case that's what you thought they meant, right? So it's not that bad. What they're saying though is if you think adults are not allowed to have sex with children because it would violate the kids' rights, you are wrong because kids do not have rights. Just look around how we treat kids in this society. That's what their point is. Okay, so as far as the legal structure here, I've said this before. There, there is a huge gaping hole, in my opinion, in standard libertarian theory. You know, Rothbard has some stuff in the ethics of liberty where it's like, oh, you got a toddler who's sitting in your kitchen and, and you know, if you don't feed him, you know, do you have a duty as a parent to feed the kid? And, well, you know, I'm not preventing him from going out and getting a job, you know, that kind of stuff. So, because understandably, Rothbard wants to deny that there are positive obligations on us, right? Just like people can't have a right to education, right? Someone, someone else walking around out there does not have a right to force the rest of us to work and then provide money so that person can be taught how to read. That's not the way rights work. Rights are negative, that we can't go violate that person's body or property more generally. That would be an initiation of aggression, okay? But someone can't have a right that entails other people to sacrifice their own property to satisfy the right. That's where Rothbard's coming from. And so then when you apply it to the awkward situation of a parent and a toddler, Rothbard concludes it can't be that parents have a, a legal duty to provide food and shelter and whatnot to their kids because that's a positive obligation. And I've concluded earlier in my treatise that you can't have that. All right, so it's a thorny issue. I don't like the way it's been handled. The only thing I've done myself in terms of trying to work through it is to say, if you're not in a legal, in a position to give meaningful consent to something, then I don't think people can act as if you had. All right. And so if somebody's really drunk at the bar, falling over drunk, and then someone says, hey, let's go play one more game of darts. If I beat you, then I get your house. And they pull out a cocktail neck and, and have the guy sign to that. And then the guy loses at darts. I think it's, it, it wouldn't bother me if that signature on a cocktail napkin did not stand up in a court of law the next day when the winner of that game tries to go to a judge and say, okay, I want the deed to that guy's house now. 
I'm okay if the judge says, nah, he really wasn't in the right frame of mind. He didn't fully realize what he was agreeing to. If he were in his right mind, he would not have agreed to such a foolish wager. Incidentally, I've made that argument for it and somebody pushed back against me and said, oh no, and he cited some case where something like that did happen. All right, so I'm not saying that's the way the law is right now. I'm saying if we're going to be Rothbardians and sit back and be armchair theorists, I could totally see there being something like that in the law where if you really don't know, and if you don't like, I mean, say you're sleepwalking or something and then someone puts up a piece of paper in front of you and, and has you sign it and they're, they're literally sleepwalking, okay? I mean, or they're delirious with fever. Clearly there's somebody, whether it's being drunk or not is enough. Clearly you could be in a state of mind and sign something that would not be legally enforceable because they would just say, you would not have agreed to this. You, you couldn't possibly have wanted to do this. It's not in your interest. So we're going to be somewhat paternalistic as the court and not hold you to this. So likewise, if an adult says to a child, hey, would you like to have sexual relations with me? Or can I touch you in so-and-so place? And the kid, quote, agrees to it and consents to it. We say, no, the kid does not understand the ramifications of that. And so you should not proceed as if you have consent because the kid cannot meaningfully give consent for the same reason, right? So it's not that I'm carving out some brand new area of the law to deal with kids. I'm, I'm saying, I think that's the way you would handle it in terms of a, a more general legal principle. So again, just like you couldn't go up to a kid and give them a few lollipops in exchange for their kidney, that you would have to get their parents to sign off on it at the very least. And then even there, you know, the courts might say, no, even parents can't, because that, that stuff's not universal, right? There are limits to what even parents can allow kids to do. And how would you come up with that? You'd say, well, because the kids have rights. And so, yes, the parents are caretakers. And in terms of nurturing them and trying to lead them to development and giving a wide range of latitude to what parents can do legally, even there, there are limits. All right. So I'm not talking about CPS coming in the state, grabbing kids away from their parents because that's a cure worse than a disease. But I'm saying... In a free society, what would the law look like? I think that's the way it would, or you know, those are the that's the general features of it. And so, no guys, just because kids can be forced to play football, does not mean therefore kids don't have rights. And so, if you're concerned about adults having sex with kids, you can't bring up that the kids have rights because hey, we force them to go to funerals. That's a terrible argument. Okay, let me now move forward to something that's really disturbing. And this will be the last, well, I think I have two more excerpts that I'll play for you. So there's a certain price to be paid. I mean, every time you put someone in jail for years, there's a huge cost to the individual, right. let alone to society. Yeah. And you have to show that, you know, the cost-benefit analysis supports this. There's a very slick, sophisticated, postmodern argument, I guess, that says that the culture is what causes the harm in people cultural assumptions right. is what causes people to feel as if they've been harmed, which ends wow. up feeling like actual harm, right? And we know psychosomatic illnesses, it's sure. real. It's real, okay? I've had them. I know, you know, I don't deny it at all. Yeah. They're realness in that way, but there is no physical basis for it. And there have been studies that have shown, I think there have been many studies, that I think a majority of so-called victims of child sex abuse, basically, felt bad mostly about the fact that they enjoyed it. That's interesting. That there's a a huge amount of guilt about having enjoyed it, having wanted it in some way, right? Right. Okay, 
for those who were praising this episode as, wow, they're really pushing the envelope. I'm glad they're going places. Did you guys catch that? Thaddeus just said that according to studies he's looked at, a majority, he thinks, of so-called victims of sexual abuse, of child abuse, the real problem was not that, you know, the, the way it hurt them was that they felt guilty about it because they actually liked it. And, you know, since society tells you in quite strong terms that adults should not be having sex with kids, that, you know, they're looking back on their own experiences like, oh, well, gee, I kind of liked that when an adult did that to me. So something must be wrong with me. And that's, that's the harm. And that Daddy said, that's a majority. And again, did you, did you catch the, the terminology he used there? I mean, let me play that for you again. The culture is what causes the harm in people. Cultural assumptions right. is what causes people to feel as if they've been harmed, which ends wow. up feeling like actual harm, right? And we know psychosomatic illnesses. It's sure. real. It's real. Okay. I've had them. I know, you know, I don't deny it at all. Yeah. Their realness in that way, but there is no physical basis for it. And there have been studies that have shown, I think there have been many studies that I think a majority of so-called victims of child sex abuse, basically. Did you catch that? Of so-called, and he's like using air quotes in the video, of so-called victims of child sex abuse. All right, okay. And so, incidentally, notice how he said it was a slick postmodern argument. So hopefully, you know, for those of you who thought I was exaggerating when I said postmodernism is antichrist, well, exhibit 16,004. Okay, incidentally, we're going to come back to, well, why don't we do it right now? You might think that, oh, Bob, here, you're, you're grasping at, at straws. You're, you're exaggerating. You're, you're, you want to be offended and you're seeing stuff that's not there. Thaddeus, I'm not, I'm not accusing Kirshner of this, but Thaddeus leaves the realm of, hey, as long as everything's consensual, it's cool. And now he's going much further. He is actively, as he said earlier, defending adult child sexual relationships, not voluntary adult child sexual relationships, but it's the adult child sex that is his primary concern here to stop it getting from getting such a bad rap. And the voluntary aspect is not high on his list of priorities. And you say, oh, come on, Bob. Now I'm gonna, I get, you're, you're, you've crossed the line. No, 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 no. Let me read to you from Thaddeus's discussion of the Roman Polanski case, but in case you don't know much about it, I need to first go to Wikipedia. So Roman Polanski, you know, the, um, the film director who was, uh, you know, R Rosemary's baby. He was also married to Sharon Tate, you know, who was infamously murdered in the, the Charles Manson case when Polanski was out of town. So this, this is from the Wikipedia entry on Roman Polanski's sexual abuse case. So this is going to be a little bit of re, but you need to know the details of this in case it wasn't fully on your radar. I know older listeners will know what I'm talking about, but younger ones might not. In March 1977, then 43-year-old film director Roman Polanski was arrested and charged in Los Angeles with six offenses against Samantha Gamer. I, I might be mispronouncing her name, a 13-year-old girl. Okay, so Polanski was 43 when this happened. The girl was 13. Rape by use of drugs, perversion, sodomy, lewd and lascivious act upon a child under 14, and furnishing a controlled substance to a minder. Okay, as arraignment, Polanski pleaded guilty to denial charges, da 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 Okay. And then he fled the country, and he was living in France. All right. So let's just, let me read 
a paragraph from the Wikipedia entry on this. According to Gamer's testimony, so again, this is the 13-year-old girl, to the grand jury, Polanski had asked Gamer's mother, a television actress and model, if he could photograph the girl as part of his work for the French edition of Vogue, which Polanski had been invited to guest edit. So again, at the time, Polanski's huge. You know, this big film director making a bunch of, you know, movies that everybody loved. And so now he was asked by the French edition of Vogue to guest edit. And so he asks Gamer's mother, hey, your daughter, who's 13, I'd like her to be a model in this photo shoot that I'm doing. Her mother allowed a private photo shoot. Gamer testified that she felt uncomfortable during the first session in which she posed topless at Polanski's request and initially did not wish to take part in a second, but nevertheless agreed to another shoot. This took place on March 10th, 1977 at the home of actor Jack Nicholson in the Mulholland area of Los Angeles. When the crime was committed, Nicholson was on a ski trip in Colorado and his living girlfriend, Angelica Houston, who was there, had left, but later returned while Polanski and Gamer were there. Gamer was quoted in a later article as saying that Houston became suspicious of what was going on behind the closed bedroom door and began banging on it, but left when Polanski insisted they were finishing up the photo shoot. Quote, we did photos with me drinking champagne, Gamer says. Quote, toward the end, it got a little scary, and I realized he had other intentions, and I knew I was not where I should be. I just didn't quite know how to get myself out of there. End quote. In a 2003 interview, she recalled that she began to feel uncomfortable when he asked her to lie down on a bed and described how she attempted to resist. Quote, I said, no, no, I don't want to go in there. No, I don't want to do this. No. And then I didn't know what else to do, she stated, adding, we were alone and I didn't know what else would happen if I made a scene. So I was just scared. And after giving some resistance, I figured, well, I guess I'll get to come home after this. Okay. Gamer testified that Polanski provided champagne that they shared as well as part of a quaalude. And despite her protests, he performed oral, vaginal, and anal sex upon her each time after being told no and being asked to stop. Okay. Polanski disputes this just for the record. He, he denies this. Polanski in his autobiography said he did not drug Gamer, that she, quote, wasn't unresponsive and that she did not respond negatively when he inquired as to whether or not she was enjoying what he was doing. Okay, so here's, here's a thought. If you're having a photo shoot with someone, you shouldn't have sex with them after the photo shoot's over, even if it's an adult woman. Okay, so that's wrong right there. Another thing, you shouldn't have sex with a woman I'm speaking from the perspective of a heterosexual man after meeting her twice, right? So I'm not sure from the story, like, did he know the family for a long time or, or, you know, and he'd had his eye on her or what, but this was the second time for the photo shoot, okay? Ideally, you would be married, okay? Certainly, if you are going to end up having sexual relations with someone you're interested in, it would come at the tail end of a much longer process of courting or dating. It would not be that upon the occasion when you first start making out, you also end up doing all the other stuff that I just described that I'm not even going to reread, okay? This is all horribly wrong on so many levels. Even if it were an adult man, an adult woman, let alone when it's a 43-year-old man and a 13-year-old girl, right? She could have been terrified that he was going to kill her. She's in the home of Jack Nicholson, and this is a famous movie producer, and she's a 13-year-old girl whose mom told her to do this, okay? Clearly, something was wrong when Angelica Houston was in the house and knew something was weird. It was knocking, like, hey, what's going on there, guys? Okay, so Thaddeus, 
the defender of the weak, the defender of the underdog, the one who stands up to the powers of the state, who knows that you can't trust psychiatrists, you can't trust scientists with their white lab coats because they always conspire to help the powerful and exploit the innocent and the weak, right? This Thaddeus, listen to how he talks about this case, all right? So this is his article in the Daily Beast from July 14th, 2017, Polanski and the debate about the age of consent. When I taught introduction to American studies at Barnard College, I asked my students a question that made me enemy professor number nine on the conservative Free Republic website. Roman Polanski's recent arrest reminded me of the public condemnation I received for asking that question. Who was too young to have sex with an adult? One of the most significant but overlooked facts of the Polanski case is that the Los Angeles district attorney quickly dropped the original rape charge, but insisted that Polanski plead guilty to, quote, unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor, a violation of California's age of consent law. Here you go, listen. Whether Polanski actually forced the girl into sex is still an open question. She has announced that she, quote, said no, end quote, but has also asked for the case to be dismissed. All right, you hear that, folks? Thaddeus is just an open, we don't know. I mean, because she said that stuff and, you know, it, it stands to reason that a 13-year-old girl upon a second photo shoot with a guy who's 43 would want him to perform oral and vaginal and anal sex upon her. I mean, how, how could we know? Like he, he said she was cool with it. I mean, she, quote, said no, but I mean, she also asked for the case to be dismissed. So clearly, if a girl doesn't feel like going forward with trusting the state to prosecute a world-famous film director who had you in Jack Nicholson's house when he did that to you, surely she would feel like she had all the powers of righteousness on her side and that this would be a walk in the park and would be a great experience for her life to go through this public trial of a world-famous movie producer or director, right? The only explanation, as far as that, I mean, <laughs> she, she dropped the case, so really, I mean, yeah, she said she said no, but you know how those 13-year-olds are. All right, I, I don't know what else to say on this, but it seems like Thaddeus understands how the state and powerful people get away with stuff in many other contexts. But when it comes to something that would make a particular example of adult child sex look bad, Thaddeus is bending over backwards to come up with excuses for the guy in question. Okay, let's go back to his interview with Kirshner. There's one more clip I want to play for you. So again, it has to do with all the different ways that allegedly harm might come to these so-called victims of child abuse. That remember, the, the slick postmodern argument shows that really probably it's the kids liked it and it's just that society tells them it was wrong and they, so they feel guilty because they enjoyed it. And so Kirshner, believe it or not, folks, I think Kirshner is actually getting uncomfortable here. It's sort of like in... Uh, <laughs> That the second the sequel to Sands of the Lambs, when the one guy invites Hannibal over, thinking he, you know, he was worried he didn't want to scare Hannibal off. And then, so that's something like this, where Kirshner, I'm sure, is used to being the person with the wackiest views in the discussion. And now he's kind of backpedaling from where Thaddeus was taking this. So let's go ahead and play this last part. Yeah. Well, I, I, at the very least, we'd want to disentangle those effects, right? I mean, yeah. you might think that, um, so for a while, there were laws which prevented, in, you know, Loving v. Virginia until 19, I think it was 1967, mm -hmm. laws which prevented interracial marriage and, and in some cases interracial um, sex. Mm -hmm. And you might think, look, um, imagine we discovered that these things were harmful to the participants. I don't exactly how we show that, but imagine some long-term psychological study. 
we'd want to know, well, is, is the harm due to the fact that society disapproves of it? Or is, it, is there something kind of the way in which human beings are structured psychologically? Right. And until we can disentangle those effects, we don't know which is producing it. That's right. So I think at the very least, we could say, look, we need to know what's, what's causing the harm, if there is any harm. Right. And also in looking at harm, we want to, we want to separate out those individuals who are willing participants and those who are unwilling participants. Yep. Because it's entirely unsurprising that unwilling participants were harmed. Um, I, I'm surprised. I mean, it's true for the adults. So it's entirely um, plausible that it would be very much true for underage individuals. Right. You guys will catch that? You see how open-minded these PhDs are? Kirshner just said, if we're talking about, you know, we want to disentangle these effects, Thaddeus. You're, you're kind of lumping stuff together. So let's first of all disentangle whether it was consensual or not, right? Let's, let's be rigorous here. And Kirshner concedes that it's entirely plausible that if a young child does not want to have sex with an adult, that it could have been harmful to the kid. He, he finds that not obvious that it's harmful, entirely plausible plausible all right let me so make sure you understood what what he's doing there rhetorically or, or you know in terms of logically breaking down the argument because he's a philosophy professor let me i'm going to replay that clip for you but again that's that's what he's doing here he's saying to thaddeus whoa 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 because this is on the tail end of thaddeus saying the studies show that most of the kids the reason they feel guilty is not because they're actually harmed by the encounter but because they liked it and so kirshner like i say i think is actually a little bit creeped out himself and he's or at least like, whoa, 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 you're, 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 you're jumping the gun there, Thad. Let, let's disentangle these things. So I want to play that for you again. And again, look at how he's in an act of nobility as a concession to the other side is agreeing, yeah, I find it entirely plausible that young kids who don't consent to having sexual relations with adults could be harmed by. He finds it plausible entirely. Let me just play that for you again. Because again, this is just summarizing the, the tone of this discussion. So for a while, there were laws which prevented, in, you know, Loving v. Virginia until 19, I think it was 1967, mm. laws which prevented interracial marriage and, and in some cases interracial um, sex. Mm-hmm. And you might think, look, um, imagine we discovered that these things were harmful to the participants. I don't exactly know each other, but imagine some long-term psychological study. We'd want to know, well, is, is the harm due to the fact that society disapproves of it? Or is, it, is there something kind of the way in which human beings are structured psychologically? Right. And until we can disentangle those effects, we don't know which is producing it. That's right. So I think at the very least, we could say, look, we need to know what's, what's causing the harm, if there is any harm. Right. And also in looking at harm, we want to, we want to separate out those individuals who are willing participants and those who are unwilling participants. Yep. Because it's entirely unsurprising that unwilling participants were harmed. Um, I, I'm surprised. I mean, it's true for the adults. So entirely um, plausible that it would be very much true for underage individuals. Right. Okay. So it's entirely plausible. These guys are scientists. Well, I don't know if they're scientists. They're, they're thinkers. So I'll stop there. If, if you're not with me, if you're with them, I doubt there's anything else I could say to convince you at this point. So like I say, this is me just going on record. No, guys, I strongly disagree. Adults should not be having sex with children. And just like James Lindsay saying, hey, everyone, two plus two equals four. That's my contribution to our public discourse. Let me put it this way. If you were going to make these claims, you should be a lot more rigorous about it, right? That these are two PhDs thrown. So this is clearly sloppy arguments. As I hope I've demonstrated. They're just particularly on the 
hey, why aren't all these pro-life people committing a lot more murders? That was just terrible, their discussion there. And so at the very least, if you're going to take on these incredibly controversial positions, you should at least be really airtight in your arguments. And they weren't. They were incredibly sloppy. So you say, Bob, are you offended as a Christian? No, I'm offended as an academic. What's the deal with that? Okay. Join us next time, folks. Thanks for listening. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.